Howdy, listeners. It's your host, Christian Huey, here. Episode 4 closes out our exploration of the debut album by Half Nelson slash Sparks. Richard Martinez and I will listen to the album track by track and share our thoughts and pass the savings on to you. Uh, But first, I want to delve into something before we wrap up the Half Nelson part of this project. Sparks' pivot from L.A. Novelty Act that outside from a radio hit in Montgomery, Alabama, seemed already to be circling the drain, two massive European superstars, was thanks in huge part to the talent, faith, and checkbooks of a lot of people who deserve a great big doff of the hat. One of those people is Joseph Fleury, and it's thanks to him I can dig deeper in relaying the story of Ron and Russell's formative years as Sparks. Now, frank admission here. I am outright stealing this entire segment from liner notes written by longtime manager Joseph Fleury. I'll explain. In 1975, after the Mark II version of Sparks had caught fire in the UK and mainland Europe, Bearsville Records sought to capitalize on the success of Sparks. This was understandable, since Bearsville had been generous in promoting Sparks in their earliest incarnation, and probably didn't make a nickel by the time Ron and Russell flew the continent. With Warner Brothers distributing Bearsville in Europe, this was an opportunity for Albert Grossman's label to earn some financial congratulations for discovering Sparks. Two originals from Sparks, that's the title, was released in 1975. It was a double album that included the debut album and the follow-up, A Woofer in Tweeter's Clothing. From what I can tell, it's pretty tough to get a hold of this vinyl release today. And that's a shame, because what makes the release special is the 16-page booklet included with extensive notes by Fleury. Joe Fleury was a huge fan of Sparks from the very beginning. He founded the first UK fan club, and he managed them in Europe during the next leg of their career. As a fan, he kept a keen eye and ear to Sparks in the earliest days. And because of him, we have incredible descriptions of the strange figure they cut on the American scene in 1971 and 72. From tiny delicatessens to the Whiskey-A-Go-Go and Max's Kansas City and New York. Here's how Fleury describes the look of Half Nelson slash Sparks while playing gigs to support their debut. And I include this in its entirety. At this point, Russell's hair had grown alarmingly, making him look like some cross between a crazed Beau Brommel and Betty Boop. His Shirley Temple manner and ruffled shirts only served to confuse audiences. Ron, meanwhile, had let nature take its course, and curls, too, sprouted forth from his head. A black suit and short mustache wasn't quite enough. He accented his huge eyes with eyeliner and would roll them profusely while on stage. His lips would contort in a sinister fashion, and his slight body would prove static. It was here that comparisons between Hitler slash Charlie Chaplin and Mr. Mail were connected. Earl would wear glitter suits and attempt to be everyone's favorite English poof guitarist. Funny thing was, his suits were always a size too small. His long blonde hair would hang in an exaggerated Rod Stewart shag, and he knew every move in the book. The Bolin Pout, the Townsend Leap, 
the calculated pretty swish, and the aggressive Beck posturing. He would also push young Russell out of the limelight with unnerving relish. He appeared to be a parody of every fad that existed. Very endearing. Jim practiced standing still, as it worked for John Entwistle, while Harley sweated a great deal, but had the looks and suave to do it well. In the name of props, before they became fashionable, Russell had a roadie push him across the stage in a papier-mâché boat during Slow Boat and shower the audience with confetti. Later on, Ron would use the confetti trick for Do-Re-Mi, where he threw clumps of it into the audience, hoping to achieve the effect of snowflakes. It didn't work. The half-Nelson LP sold next to nothing, and the live band fared even worse. Apparently, the elite in L.A. thought they were a local band and not worth bothering about on account of the fact that although they looked and pranced Britishly, the accents and genetics weren't there. It's a shame because Half Nelson was never consciously British. They loved the idea of showmanship and only British acts realized the importance of visuals. Russell's vocals had a European air about them, but it was never a case of Russell Mail wants to be British slash French slash German. It only served to make the songs more interesting. On reflection, the lyrics tend to tell more about the U.S. culture than Europe. Ron enjoys taking small, mundane situations and events in life and blowing them out of proportion. The States is the only place where things are bigger than life. Perhaps it may be America through the eyes of a European aristocrat, or the other way around. The Beach Boys at 78 RPM, or Procol Harum on speed. Nelson, uh, Ron and Russell and the other guys uh, had uh, they started sending out copies of this uh, acetate uh, record that they had like a hundred copies of to anyone who would possibly listen and and one of the people who did uh, pick it up and actually thought something of it was Todd Rundgren mm-hmm. Rundgren Rundgren we're gonna do this again <laughs> uh, and he was very interested um, and as uh, as it turns out um, probably a little more auspiciously, his girlfriend at the time was also interested, and she ended up uh, fucking Russell. There it is, right no, there. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. So good yes. pull, good pull, Russell. So the uh, so so Todd was uh, told by uh, the uh, record executive, the president of the record company. I think he's the president of the record company, uh, and I've got these markings over here. It was. Um, uh, Grossman, Albert Grossman, oh, Albert, Albert Grossman. <laughs> there was this guy named Albert Grossman, and he actually uh, was a he was a manager 
for Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Come on so over here, man. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. You're over here. I want to see what these guys... I'm doing Gilbert Godfrey. Yeah, right you now. are. <laughs> I want to see what these guys have over there. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about, man. You're still... You over know. Here. I'm over here. So, uh, so, he, so Todd Rundgren uh, went to the doggy factory. And we didn't talk about this last time. No, Do you know anything about this? Uh, no, I'm afraid to ask. Them. So, uh, so for a short amount of time, uh, uh, Sparks slash Half Nelson, they, they had a drummer by the name of Mike Burns, who ended up not becoming their drummer, because he apparently was a shitty drummer, and become, became their manager. Uh, wait, 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 wait. The drummer ended up becoming the, the manager? The drummer became the manager, right. Oh, I think I read something about this where, you know, they ended up uh, letting him be part of the band yes. because he wasn't that good of a drummer. He was a very shitty drummer, but apparently he was a very good manager. and Or at least he was a good person to... Um, he's a good outreach PR guy. And um, so he ended up talking to Todd Rundgren, and, uh, and Todd came out because he wanted to hear Half Nelson play. And uh, at that time, they were rehearsing in a place that they called the, the Doggy Factory. And the Doggy Factory was a place... Uh, where Mike Burns's family owned a factory where they manufactured doggy beds. Oh, doggy beds. There were actually doggy beds that were made in this factory in 1971. Somebody's got to make them. Apparently apparently it is. Now it's a huge, what, multi-billion dollar black market. Yeah, exactly. Like, well, what, what kind of doggy bed do you want? Do you want, like, are you looking Goose for Goose down, <laughs> artificial, my a dog. A water bed. My dog oh, has yeah. allergies. A bunk bed, exactly. Cannot I need a hypoallergenic um, doggy bed. Yeah, please. four inches. Um, so he yeah. went there and he wanted to hear what they had at that time. But by then, uh, uh, Half Nelson, I'm going to call them until they change their name, um, had also recorded a four-track EP of other songs that they had uh, written more recently that ended up making it over to the final album. And there was um, there was one song in particular that uh, Todd wanted to hear. And uh, I'll find it later. But um, they... The band had the idea to send their drummer, Harley Feinstein, off into... Yes, Harley Feinstein. That's not really his name. That is his name. Is his really? name is Harley Feinstein. Harley yeah. Feinstein. Say it. Harvey Feinstein. No, I... I just want to be loved! Because <laughs> I thought the same thing. I'm like, Harvey Feinstein? Harvey Feinstein was their drummer? Right. No, it was Harvey... It was... It was the gameplay right. Yeah, exactly. It was Harvey Feinstein... Um, who might be a listener of the show, by the way, because he's be definitely nice. he's definitely on the uh, the Facebook group. Oh, okay, yeah, nice. He definitely is. Okay. And, uh, and a friend of the podcast, Monty Mallon, uh, has interviewed him extensively before, and so oh, excellent. We will get him. So I'm going to say nice things, including I just want someone to laugh. <laughs> so Harvey Five. Uh, <laughs> Harvey Feinstein um, decided he was going to go into the bathroom while they were recording, not to go to the bathroom, but he went to the bathroom with his drum set, and he played the drums from in the bathroom in the next room just to make an impression, I guess. And Todd Rundgren thought that that was fucking brilliant. Because, what, the linen closet was occupied? Uh, Maybe so, but I guess it was the sound he was looking for. 
I don't know. My voice sounds so much better when I'm in the bathroom and I'm singing. What is? I mean, I don't know. It's yeah, acoustics. No, I know why it is. It's, well, acoustics is part of it, but also I think, and particularly if you're in the shower. Yeah, where I'm. I mean, you've got I'm a singing. hot water and your it's voice just is opening like, oh, up. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly, and right. you're like, man, my voice sounds fucking good. I know. Like I can fucking bank on. Yeah, that. and then I step out and I'm in the bedroom. <laughs> I sound like I'm fucking. It's a- me, <laughs> Record scratch. Stop. Right. Uh, anyway, so 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 Todd liked what he heard, but his girlfriend Christine, they called Miss Christine, really liked what she heard. Oh yeah, yeah. What she got from Russell. So uh, before they started uh, recording, uh, they they went and they met the. Um, they met the manager. They, well, I guess who would be their manager? Or actually, let's be a little more accurate here. I believe he was the head of the record company. The head of the record company. We talked about this guy, Albert Grossman. Mm-hmm. And Albert Grossman had a few things to say. He's like, I don't get you guys, but I hear that you guys are very interesting. You're onto something. <laughs> And he really liked Todd Rundgren, and he said that... By the way, one big thing we'll come back to is that... I don't like the name. It's too weird, too wrestling. <laughs> and I'll just get this out now. So it's too wrestling. After, when, the, when that album uh, failed to chart, didn't do very well, they weren't getting a lot of traction, uh, they were sent to go uh, talk to Albert Grossman um, in New York uh, another time. And as he did so often in those days with his clients. He took them out to a nice Szechuan restaurant. Right? And uh, and afterward he said, I'm going to tell you what your problem is. It's the name! You guys are funny. You're funny, you're jokey, you like the Marx Brothers. You, you play the music all right. You should do something like the Marx Brothers, only the Sparx Brothers? <laughs> Is that what he really that's, said? That's like, I'm not going to say verbatim, but that's that's basically what he said. And anyway, long story short, after the cutting and the recording and the uh, promotion of this album, they ended up having their name changed to the Sparks Brothers, which um, ah. which was maintained for like a couple of months until it was just shortened to Sparks. Best right. decision ever. Uh, so they did a lot of recordings. Um from what I read, uh, Todd Rundgren was uh, uh, fairly hands-off. So what year was this? Sound. This was 1971. Okay. Right. So, I mean, you know, we can take a moment and talk about what's going on. I think Yeah, what's going on in 71? So 1971, I guess the, the Vietnam War is still going gangbusters. Mm-hmm. Very, very well. Um, we've got uh, uh, Richard Nixon. Right. Best president Ever. until now. Yeah. <laughs> Right, and then uh, I don't know what was happening in the UK at that time. That might be of interest, but I'm looking up to see. So uh, it looks like uh, a man b- by 1970. Yeah, Rundgren had released Runt, and then in '72 oh. is when he released his magnum opus, which was something, anything, something. Right. Um, so he was right. He they were catching him right in the middle of. Uh, you know, his ascension into not only um, music, but into greatness. I mean, that that Something Anything album is 
unbelievable. So I, I want to uh, just play a clip. If, if um, those who are listening don't know Todd uh, Rundgren, uh, I mean, anyone who doesn't have more than a passing knowledge of Todd Rundgren, I'm, I'm sure knows his big hit uh, from I, the late 70s, which was... Um, I Saw the Light. That's the one you're thinking? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. I love that okay. song. I, oh I, I, I was thinking, I don't want to work. Oh, I just want yes. to bang on the drum all yeah, day. That's another huge but that's, hit. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's so, a great song. Uh, I'm going to play uh, a clip from that album, uh, Runt, which caught uh, garnered so much attention, which in, uh, also got the attention of the Mail Brothers. Um, this is called We Gotta Get You a Woman from 1970. Leroy, boy, is that you? I thought your post-hanging days were through. Sunken eyes and full of sighs. Tell no lies. You get wise. I tell you now we Okay, so nice. yeah, it's cool. It's a, it's a catchy song. I mean, he's got the, the double tracked vocals, though. It, it does sound not that different, I guess, from what you would have heard around 1979. No, that sounds exactly what I would hear. Right. Yeah. But, um, so he got their attention and they caught his attention and they recorded. Uh, they re-recorded uh, the the four songs that they uh, that uh, were in their four song EP, the one that they did after the album unreleased that we talked about uh, last time around, and chupa 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 chupa, and we're gonna go ahead and uh, and get into that right now. Oh, I think I had a I think I had a story that I wanted to finish up. Um, so Todd Rundgren, uh, from from what what I've read, uh, uh, was less and less involved with the proceedings uh, the longer that they they did go on, and by Ron and Russell's own admission, they were kind of nasty to the guy. Really, uh, they didn't really appreciate him hanging around and and interfering, you know. And who knows how much of that had to do with uh, you know Russell fucking his girlfriend. <laughs> Probably, probably a little. I don't know. Quite a lot. Um, when they were doing live shows, they didn't have many places to go, and I think this is what was really interesting about someone who was all who already had a toehold in the industry, like uh, Todd Rundgren. The places that these guys were playing were places like, according to Russell, a Hollywood delicatessen. Where the other act was a blind piano player. Hey, nice. come on now. Could have been, been plenty exactly. It could have been Stevie Wonder. For it, all or now. Exactly. Uh, and then we found, this is a quote from Russell, and then we actually found ourselves performing at a Mormon dance, which ah, is a real problem. That's, yeah. Because Mormons aren't supposed to dance. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't like suggestive lyrics. Uh, anyway, so they, 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 they cut the thing, uh, they, they got it out. Um, and the very first, well, the first song on the album, um, and their first single was, uh, called Wonder Girl, 
And if you hear any sort of compilation from Sparks, uh, chances are it's going to begin with Wonder Girl. And I got a couple of things that I want to see say about that um, before we do play it. Okay, so I'm not going to read all of the shit that I wrote. Um, oh come on! Because no, you oh, know, like I'm not going to go the Robert Chris Chris Gow uh, uh, route and pretend like every every word that I write deserves to be hang hung on, but it does. Um, but I, I'll just say this. So Wonder Girl. All right. So this is the song that starts off uh, their first album. It's their first single. There's a nine notes guitar riff. To my ear, sounds like the waddle of a duck. It's the opening salvo of Half Nelson's first album. It's unrock and roll, I would say. There is nothing that sounds like the rock and roll that you would have heard on the airwaves in 1971 or 1972. So it takes a couple of listens to realize just how ballsy a choice I think it is for this to be the lead single on their debut album. I'm going to go ahead and play it right now. And we're going to watch the video, by the way. Oh, nice. Let's yeah. That. She was a wonder girl. No, I, I completely agree with you. There is something very German, very European about about uh, about that song, and um, and I, it makes me think of bands that were big at that time, or just becoming big. Mm-hmm. And I and I and I mentioned this later in some of the other things that I wrote, like bands like Can. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. or uh, I don't know how you pronounce it. Noi, no, no, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. New, new, is it new? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, there's a very steady beat that you just don't fucking stray no. from at yeah. all. They're very, right? very disciplined. Yeah, extremely disciplined. And that's what I got from the song. It's very disciplined. And I've read through the lyrics, and I've read through the lyrics, and I've read through the lyrics, and I find nothing that's really that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I thought it was a great choice. Uh, well, an interesting choice for their very first single. And, you know, and like any time... 
it does happen to come on on my Spotify. Like, you know, I jam out a little bit. Um, but uh, it's no, it was nothing like what you, you would have heard on American radio at the no, time. Absolutely when not. you were hearing insane fucking guitar noodling, you know, from, um, you know, Led Zeppelin, which, you know, of course, they were not American, but they were on American radio. And things like that. It was not blues-based. No, I mean, looking back at what was popular in um, in uh, Germany at the time, I mean, there was... What was popular in Germany uh, So it time? looks like Tangerine Dream. Tangerine Dream. Okay, those yeah. guys were cool at that time. Um, at that time. Let me see. There's Adonis Summer, but I guess that was more like in 75 and so forth. Did you forth. say Adonis Summer? <clears throat> Donna Summer. Donna oh, Donna. Summer. I was going to say. Was there an Adonis Summer who... There was Begat? no, 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 no. Okay. Uh, James Last apparently is a big name that happened in the sixties and the seventies in German for. I don't know that name um, for what he termed as the happy party sound. A happy party sound. Happy okay, party. I can get that. I can say happy party sound. It's a happy party sound. We are also happy to be partying over here. Can't you see? A country would be back. <laughs> uh so you know, I, I made a couple of remarks here uh, when I wrote about the song that I thought it was uh, also interesting because as opposed to a lot of the uh, psychedelic stuff um, that had recently been on the radio and a lot of stuff that they were into uh, up until that time, there's none of that. I mean, it's very straightforward. It's very clear-eyed. Uh, it sounds a little bit like French cabaret, which they would do over and over and over and over again. That's all I got to say about that one. That song good. Yeah, okay. We're going to go into the next song then. So this next song um, is called Fala Fali. And... If there's a modern, well, I don't want to say modern. <laughs> We're old. If there, if there is a band from the last twenty five years that that song sounds like it would belong to, I have an idea who it would be. Yes. Oh wow. Um, well, I mean, I would say there's also Postal Service uh, comes to mind. Okay. I would say the Postal Service. Um, 
uh, obviously craft work. We talked about craft yeah. work. Um, uh, you know, I'm dying to get this out. Th- is it talking heads? It's not talking. Heads. Oh no. It, no, okay. it's, it's not talking, talking heads. It's stereo lab. Stereo lab. You know, I'm not too familiar. With oh, stereo you got to hear stereo lab oh, because man. stereo lab, stereo labs entire musical career was about taking that motoric beat and building on that. Really? And this is one of the places that... Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you asked that. Let's see. I love the internet. Stereo Lab. My favorite song has got to be, and it's most people's, is... What's it fucking called? Stereo Lab. Is it called Crazy Brutal? No, there's no song like that. No. Uh, <laughs> hold on. Maybe, maybe this is it. This is it. Yeah, it's definitely out there. ahead of it. where my head goes but there it is uh, I still think that that song sounds very much like the crowd rock uh, that came out at the time and the next song is one that was on the unreleased uh, Half Nelson demo album which is called Roger written by uh, Russell Mail and honestly they didn't change much here it is one two three episodes ago but um i there uh, this is this is where i really need to go back and hear early frank zappa and yeah and probably Mother's go back and hear the first uh pink floyd records mm-hmm. because i know there's stuff in there yeah that comes from there 
Like I, I definitely hear those influences. And we talked about that on the last episode as well. Um, so the next song that we have is, uh, oh, High C. Oh shit. You know what? I can, I can completely cannot believe that I forgot to bring up the lyrical content of Fala Fali. If you read the lyrics of Fala Fali, which I'm going to do for you right now, you're welcome. Fala Fa Lee lyrics. You're going to be very unsettled, as occasionally will happen when you read some of Ron's lyrics. Fala Fa Lee, she ain't heavy, she's a brother to me. What I need, she can't be. Nature, nurture, who's to say, but still Fa La Fa Lee. Anything between us is a felony. Now, if you okay, continue wow. reading, you really get a strong suggestion that he's singing about incest. His sister, yeah. Yes. <laughs> right. So there it is. The second song on the album is about incest, incest. between a That's brother right. and a sister. Yes. Very, very uh, well. Which, you know, in all regards is, you know... Societal. Well, this album did do very well in Montgomery, Alabama. Do we want to make some <laughs> Alabama incest jokes? Okay. It's scored number one. Yeah. yeah. All right. So the next uh, song that we have here is um, uh, is called High C, and this is uh, and this is a, it's a, not about the fruit it's punch. not about the fruit punch, which no. I don't think yeah. existed. All yet. right. Uh, but no, it's it's a it's a song written by uh, Ron. Um, about a, uh, a an opera singer who is past her prime and she's retired and he yearns for her and he would love to sing High C with her. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because what what young man doesn't want to score with, you know, a an nice opera aging singer? opera singer who...
<laughs> there it is. So, so th- there is High C. Uh, I'm going to read a, uh, some of the lyrics from that that it, uh, I had prepared. Uh, Fala, uh, or you, you take this one, why don't you? Right okay, here. pull them up. Yeah, they're right here. That's Fala Fali. The lyrics to High C. A picket fence, I leaped it through your screen door. I gotta meet you, High C up and High C down. Down, down. Since you left me the opera, you just frown a lot and mumble, I'm humble. Press clippings hang from torn wallpaper, a dust-covered phone, and no one would ring her. High C up and High C down. Since you left the opera, you just frown a lot and you tell me. Tell me of the times when you were so big in Vienna and the people paid good money just to hear you in your splendor. But that's all over now. That's all over now. Limited tastes. I wish I could help you. Oh, I'm sorry. Et cetera. I said, that's fine. All right, lad. I have to go. I have got to help you. Great. Okay, there it is. Um, that is one of my favorite songs from the album. I think it has a really good a driving beat. I really do like Ron's... Uh, um, I like Ron's piano doing the 16th notes. Very, very cool. I really do like it. It's got a great beat and I can dance to it there. Exactly. Uh, Thanks, Thanks man. Right. Fletcher Honorama. Now, Fletcher Honorama... Uh, it was a song uh, written by Ron, of course, and it is uh, ostensibly, at least as far as I can tell, um, about. It's a, it's it sounds like it's a televised wake that is happening for a man who is presumed to die. That's pretty tomorrow. specific. Wow. It's very specific. Before he dies, yes, it's a televised wake. wake for a man pre-wake, if you will. So he can be there. So he it. can be there for okay. it. right, exactly. And then in the middle of it, and I really want to do get to that that middle eight uh, where it delves into his um, memory and plays one of his favorite songs from his youth. Which would be, you know, from like the 30s or 40s or something like that. That's this the type of really fucking great. wink I want. I want that. Me too. Be able to be there, witness it, this... call out the people who don't show up. Right, exactly. Fuck I'll you, fuck you. Fuck. I'm, di- I'm going to haunt you. Right. Tell the people who you're going to haunt that you're going to haunt them. Fucking ignored me. Fletcher Anorama. Um, it's... Um, it's a it's a very subdued, somber uh, sound. There's some very simple stuff uh, happening from Harley Feinstein, uh, the drummer, um, and I'll just play it. Please him very softly while we jo- 
So I, I had to get through that middle yeah. eight where they yeah, start playing that tin pan alley kind of Scott Joplin stuff. And, um, yeah, you definitely called it. Um, again, like, I, I, I find over and over again that that's one of Sparks fans' favorite songs. And, you know, I, I get it. It's a great, great tune. Fletcher Honorama. Uh, the last song on the first side, and, of course, we are talking about records when people were... Uh, writing songs for two Your sides. Vinyl. Your vinyl. But, Put me yeah. a record on the crank up the old player, player there. Yes, and uh, take that old prehistoric bird with the very... <laughs> thin needle-like uh, beak way, to way, put way on the... Yeah. It's a living. All right, so... It's uh, a living. It's, it's a living. <laughs> the next song, uh, the last song on the side is Simple Ballet, which is a very simple uh, waltz, and it's another song where they look back to uh, styles of music from the pre-rock era. Times and, of yesteryear. Um, like many... Uh, songs that Ron would go on to write that starts with the very simple concept what if and goes on to write well then this would happen and maybe this would happen this would happen uh, the conceit here is like uh, what if ballet was the big new thing that uh, grabbed America and uh, this is it simple little ballet I like that. It's simple ballet. Really yeah, good. it is really nice. It's kind of meditative. Um, you know the the thing that I keep. I mm-hmm. mean, as we go through these, I have yet to hear a song that I think was just filler. Where they're yeah. like, yeah, this is good. Let's throw. It'll happen. No, <laughs> it, it won't happen. Coming. It won't happen in this up. album. We got one coming up. <laughs> no, we don't. It, like uh, I, I, I will say this. No, I mean they, you. And you're right. Like I don't feel like there was anything that was really filler. Um, for you know. Uh, uh, at least the good first 15 or so years of their career. And um, that one did sound really inspired. And it's just fun. It's just nice to listen to. It's good. It's good. It's good because it's good. It's good for the kids, for the children. for the kids. Let's put it on. All right. Uh, So the next song that we have here is uh, is another song um, 
Well, I, okay. So I would say that, that Slow Boat is the one song that I think that the band thought could have been an AOR hit because it's so freaking ordinary. I'm sorry. It's so fucking ordinary. Uh, it sounds it's a it's it's a ballad that sounds like it could have come from Julio Iglesias. Nice. What's wrong with Julio Iglesias? Not a damn thing. I love Julio. Iglesias. I'm just saying that it was not where they thought they were, but they did come up with the song. They conjured the song "Slow Boat." I'm really which, intrigued now. Yeah, well, you're gonna hear it, and it is uh, it is a ballad about love lost in and fairly you know uh, simple terms and fairly simple imagery, but it works. It works really really well, and uh, Ron and uh, Russell really sells it vocally. Um, and this is the song that Russell really thought would, should have been a hit if only their record company uh, weren't uh, so indifferent. It's a slow boat. Slow boat. One word. Slow boat. Slow boat. Slow boat. doesn't fit into their you know catalog Million. of the songs we heard yeah previously but that's still better than 75 percent it's of a the really good fucking you song, would hear on the radio that yeah. year that's still way better i mean I know. you know i mean it's better than like star rockets and flight afternoon delight yeah if you ask absolutely. me absolutely know? i mean i I, I kind of dig it. I like it. I mean, it just it may Sky not rockets. fit into the theme of the the overall theme of the record, but I I could still listen yeah. to that. So, uh, story goes when they were playing this uh, album, when they were touring uh, this album, um, they built a paper mache rowboat for Russell to stand in and sing from while he was wearing a sailor suit. Because who doesn't want to? Because I mean, who doesn't want to see or do or have yeah. any part of any of that? Um, now, I don't know if it was just, you know, because the male brothers felt a little embarrassed by having a song that they felt was too AOR for their own musical or intellectual tastes, but, I'm, but they definitely made up for it with the next song on the album, which was written uh, and also uh, sung by Earl Mankey, uh, who was their guitarist, who wouldn't be with them for much longer unfortunately but and he because he did contribute a lot of stuff um but this is the very first song 
of Spark slash Half Nelson that ever got any radio play. And this uh, was played on local radio in Los Angeles. This is Biology 2. And before I play it, I want to say that Earl Mankey really gets a chance to let his freak flag fly and, uh, and really show his influences that come a lot from uh, Frank Zappa. And in the thing that I wrote, um, I also think that it's quite possible that the guys Barnes and Barnes who wrote Fish Heads, Fish Heads, mm. really pulley Fish Heads yes. may have gotten something from this. Um, it's a it's a cool song. I do like the song, and I mean it's basically it's it, I love songs about sex that aren't about sex. Ah yes. And this is a song about sex that's not about sex, but oh, it is, right, but it's not right. Sex. Like it's about sex, but it's about sex at the genetic level. It's like I want you to. I want us to make a phenotype. Um, he's talking about meiosis in here. I really love he the shape is, of your ovum. Yes! Thank you. I don't have one, but thank you. He's making sexy sound as, as unsexy as possible. And it's very well done. And here it is. This, this is Earl Menke um, uh, with Biology. Ooh, let's do it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> if you want to hear the rest, you can hear the whole album. Uh, I just think that's uh, precious. I love it. How well way. did this album sell? Uh, very, very poorly. If you want numbers, I can't. Don't know how to find them. Um. So if you could find them, that'd be great. Yeah. Let me see. But like, it did not. Like, it barely just. I mean, it it got it. It produced enough for Beersfield to keep them on for one more record. Right. Whatever that means. Okay. 
so the the next song uh, was the only other holdover from the uh, Half Nelson, um, uh, uh, call it the demo uh, album. Uh, this is uh, another a Russell Penn tune, Saccharin and the War. And we didn't really talk about much uh, about what uh, Saccharin and the War was about um, when we did our first episode. Um, and so I did a little bit of research and I actually listened. Um, so, uh, the differences between this version and the last version are, well, I mean, some would argue, in fact, Russell Mayle did argue that it did lose some character, uh, in the Rungren version, but it does rock a little bit harder after the first verse. Now, the song is about the religious fervor encouraged in women by society to lose weight. Mm. This is 1971. Yes, that went over well with the, uh, Women yeah, I'm sure. And there were de- well, it's but he it's very tongue in cheek. I mean, he's he definitely it. You can read it as being sympathetic. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. sure. Uh, there are de- descriptions of a cross and crucified doctor. Did he suffer for their perceived sins of being previously overweight? Anyway, uh, it's a f- provocative song for the time. Definitely not one that's going to make it uh, on AOR radio. Uh, but it's back. This is Saccharin and the War Redux. <laughs> Saccharin mm. and the wall. Sweet no. So I, I, I'm guessing saccharin was like sold as a weight, weight loss helper in that time. I don't know. Because I, like we all know what saccharin is now, right? But like, I, you know, there, there, there have been so many studies since then that kind of cast doubt on whether saccharin actually, you know, helps your metabolism. One of the stories I was reading was that um, when you switch to Coke Zero, yeah, you actually eat more or consume more calories, believing that you have um, you basically oh working up like in a negative. Okay, aspect, I see, but know. that's psychological. Though. You're like, oh, I can have but that. That's psychological. I can have that bear claw because right. I had a diet Coke. Right, right. It, you know, consuming that versus consuming sugar. That's what I want to know. And I, I, know. Still, I, I of... still believe that, well, saccharin, I don't think you find saccharin anymore. I think they've replaced saccharin, haven't they? 
No, I, as far have as they I not? know. I, I feel like they've replaced Saccharin with, um, uh, what are the other ones? Splen- well, Splenda, I guess, is one. Right? right? That's like a fructose. Yeah, that's a, yeah. A sucralose. Which Sucre- one is sucralose? That's yeah, su- yeah, sucralose, yeah, right? You're yeah. right. Right. Coke Zero, I want to say, is Splenda, whereas uh, Diet Coke is Saccharin. And I don't even think it's aspartame, because aspartame was the other big thing. Oh, that is um, equal. Equivalency yeah. to sugar. No calorie right. sugar. And yeah. here we go. We'll never have to worry about sugar ever again. Yeah. I'll lose 20 pounds. Right. I'll get laid. Yes. You know, finally. But now, senior year was hard. Hey, listeners, it's me, Christian. Sorry if you were getting into the groove there. Unfortunately, that's where the tape ends, or rather where it would end if I were talking about tape and not a hard drive that filled up during the recording. Uh, I'll walk you through the last couple of songs all by my lonesome, since Richard, who I thought was my friend, flatly refused to come back to redo the final portion. Well, maybe refuse is too harsh a word. Let's just say... I forgot to ask him. Anyway, we left off with the lyrics to Big Bands by Ron and Russell, and here they are. I smiled like Herbert Hoover when they played. I dreamed of bankers' daughters' better days. Care to dance, my lady, live near here? They certainly sound in fine form. Do you care? I am quite partial. Broke, spent, I still marshal. Follow me, my lady, to my home. See my large collection, some on loan. Of every big band record ever made, I had to sell my heater, so don't shake. I am quite partial, broke, spent, I still marshal. All my strength when big bands blare. I smile like Herbert Hoover when the big bands played. I dreamed of bankers' daughters' better days, for I am quite partial, broke, spent, I marshal. All my strength when big bands play. Knowing of their flair for filling empty stomachs, empty hearts, They're not so far apart. They're not so far apart. And if you can't sleep late at night, it sure ain't your coffee. Well, it's the bunk. Well, honey, I am quite partial. Broke, spent, I still marshal all my strength. I smile like Herbert Hoover when the big bands play. I frequent the dance halls most every night into the day. I know the name of every trombone player that exists. They don't know I used to blow before the crash had hit our land. I find it so much warmer in the ballroom than at home. A common bond unites us, so we're really not alone. Sure, we've got some problems, but tonight we won't admit it. Take my hand, lady friend. We'll make it seem like we were there tonight. Oh, one more thing forgot to mention. About two and a half minutes in to big bands, you will hear Russell rapping. I shit you not. It's... He's basically rapping, um, so check that out. I smiled like Herbert Hoover when they 
almost every night into the day. I know the name of every trombone player that exists. They don't know I used to blow before the crash had hit our land. And that was Big Bands. Uh, incidentally, Ron later said in an interview that the Herbert Hoover mention was one of the last times Sparks would not have to worry about a non-American audience missing a lyrical reference in a song, because at that point their entire fan base was American and probably numbered in the dozens. Uh, and that tees us up for the final song on the Half Nelson slash Sparks debut album, which is No More Mr. Nice Guys by Ron Mayle and Jim Mankey. Yes, it is nice guys, plural. It's the only pure rock song on the album, in my opinion. And the title does appear to have been borrowed by Alice Cooper for his 1973 hit, No More Mr. Nice Guy, singular. Uh, one can hear the inspiration for early Queen on this track. And here is maybe where Todd Rundgren was wrong when he proclaimed the music on this album, quote, would not relate to the outside world. This is pretty relatable. Um, incidentally, Harley Feinstein uh, later named Nice Guys as one, uh, one song among many that were uh, just casually inspired by someone's offhanded comment in the rehearsal space. Uh, and these are the lyrics, which pretty much speak for themselves. Just when sin was quite the thing, there's one who holds quite tight to what had worked before. What's his outlet? What's his secret? Is it something one can buy at some drugstore? Could the gospel be his girl? Does he exercise by breaking two by fours? Just what is his game? Could he be enticed? No one's quite that lame. No one's quite that nice. That nice. That nice. No more Mr. Nice Guys. Few are left but him. No more Mr. Nice Guys. The nice guys cannot and the nice guys shall not. The nice guys will not win. I'm going to leave it there so you guys can appreciate the actual song coming up. Ice. 
And thus closes out Half Nelson slash Sparks. Some final thoughts. This album lays out what Sparks the Band is all about, in my opinion. And that's what successful debut albums do. Todd Rundgren didn't do a whole lot to change the sound Half Nelson had already honed, although he did beef up the lower end and he made the guitar parts clearer. And he definitely did not try to attenuate Ron's lyrical eccentricities, uh, which were then still finding the balance between caustic wit and pure silliness. Uh, Russell had yet to explore his piercing falsetto register, which he would later be famous for, but he has a reedy tenor on most of this album, which has plenty of character as well as range. Perhaps the element that is most striking when considering this album up against the rest of the Sparks canon is how much this is a product of an entire band's efforts. Earl Menke was just as potent a creative force as Ron and Russell in Sparks' first incarnation, and most of the really experimental exercises here are thanks to him. In a way, Sparks would never be quite as interesting without Earl pulling them as far into outer space as he could go. Even when Ron and Russell made an album called In Outer Space, they couldn't get as spacey as Earl. Half Nelson is a groundbreaking album that destroys every expectation one might go into having about how a pop song, uh, pop song should be constructed. Uh, but in the end, for all the genre explorations and songs that feel sewn together from parts of other vastly different songs, like musical Frankenstein monsters, this still manages to come off as the band intended, a pop album. Now, as I mentioned in the previous episode, there was one final Jim Mankey penned song that was left off the record at the last moment. Apparently, that was called I Am an Old Retired Man. To my knowledge, the recording has not been unearthed uh, nor shared. If you know something about it, let me know. Uh, I was also asked uh, by Richard, actually, how Half Nelson uh, slash Barks to the album sold. And other than to say very poorly, I really don't know. Uh, if you have any numbers about that or know where I could find them, please drop the show a line at podcastsparks at gmail.com. This is Computer Girl from the song Computer Girl. Christian has yet to make contact with Earl Mankey, a driving creative force on the first three Half Nelson slash Sparks releases, including the 1969 demo. He has, however, written to ask permission to play a clip of an existing interview with Earl. The following is an excerpt from a podcast called Doug Lenner's World of Noise, from 2011. In this clip, Earl speaks briefly about his techniques in the studio, and touches on his time with Sparks. One of them did that, and, and uh, probably the source of some of your comments there is with uh, Sparks, yeah, named ha- right. Half Nelson at that time. Yeah, It's a very interesting band, and continues to be an interesting uh, project. I know that uh, your days with it uh, were in the early days. You were a founding member. Acts like Depeche Mode, and New Order, and Morrissey, and They Might Be Giants, all of them consider Sparks to be a really important influence on them. What could they have been thinking? Yeah. <laughs> So I, 
think it's time that we hear not only uh, some Sparks music, but also specifically three tracks from the first demo that you made that you were just speaking of. We're going to play Chili Farm Farney, Join the Firm, and Jane Church. And uh, in addition to playing guitar on all these, you were the engineer. Yep. And uh, they're great tunes to put a name on your engineering and production approach, and you've already mentioned it, and that name is Home Recording. (laughs) So let's check it out. Here they go. In them, you can hear the future of pop music in a lot of ways, especially a lot of uh, the ways that pop music was expressed in the 80s, as well as the influences of groups from the 60s like the Doors and the Amboy Dukes and the Electric Prunes, the Naz, Sid Barrett's Pink Floyd. You can hear bits of their sounds and thoughts and all of this. It's really fascinating. In addition to the future of music, you can also hear the future of recording in them, I think. At that time, it was unusual for bands to record at home. Recording is what big, fancy, expensive studios were for, but now in the digital age, home recording is the norm. Talk to us about how your approach to recording and producing bands evolved from the days of using a two-track tape recorder to, to produce those Sparks demos to the work you did in the 80s and the 90s and still are doing. It's sad, but it's, it's, it's a little less fun because it's also easy. You don't feel as though you're at the cutting edge. You don't feel like you're doing things that other people aren't doing. Uh, you, you did uh, synthesizer stuff, uh, stuff in, your back, in your past days, right? And, Absolutely. And uh, you remember when you had to take your ARP 2600 and record just a single note at a time, for me, the thing that I admired the most was uh, guitar pop music, and you know, turning a single ARP 2600 into a, a guitar pop song was a bit of an event. <laughs> that took a lot of work. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I definitely followed all of the synthesizer people back in those days, but I was always a little disappointed because I could I listened to the music and I thought, oh, they're just turning on their ARP and twirling the knobs and keeping the results, you know. Whereas I tried to get a an act, I tried to have a a vision in mind before I started and make things actually uh, sound like I wanted them to sound on the arc, which was quite difficult. So uh, these days, though, you 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 just uh, find the sound that you like, paste it throughout your picture on the screen, and uh, keep on tweaking it until you're happy, and and you can get just about any result you can think of now, uh, and. Uh, about the only thing that really can be exciting, I think, well, for me, that can really excite me is to try to think of something that I haven't thought of before to try to do. And then, uh, of course, move ahead and do it, which is just the very satisfying part. 